I think there's a crisis of trust and leadership. We're all seeing that expanded right now. So I think that we have to return to the core of what it means to lead, which is who are you? Are you doing something beyond yourself? Welcome to the Intersections Podcast, where we take you to the crossroads of ideas. I'm Seth Shapiro, and on each episode, we explore the knowledge and beliefs that lead to human flourishing through the lives and stories of influential voices. Over the past 10 years or so, we have seen a precipitous decline in trust in leaders. From a political culture that has embraced leaders that display blatant disrespect for others, to a national environment where differing views are often confronted with the desire to dominate and defeat, many feel we are experiencing a crisis of trust and leadership. Yet a healthy trust in leaders is essential for social cohesion. How do you build and develop healthy leaders in government, business, and institutions? Karen Howells has been an executive coach and organization development consultant for over 30 years. She has helped organizations in the United States and around the world develop leadership and teamwork skills in a variety of settings. She has worked with Fortune 500 companies as well as smaller businesses and is the president and founder of the Howells Group. Karen Howells, welcome to Intersections. It's great to be here. Um, You work with organizations all over the world and uh, you say that you are an executive coach. What is an executive coach? I get that question a lot. Fundamentally, we're working with people who are in a leadership role, somewhere between middle management and then all the way up to the C-suite. And the reason that that has just seen a boom in popularity is how quickly um, the change cycles go, how pressed people are for time. Uh, COVID, (laughs) it was hard to go to a a workshop uh, with other executives during COVID And so I think that um, fast-forwarded coaching, and it's basically helping the person, the individual leader in the seat, while they're in the middle of their work, gain skills and tools and self-awareness that they need to be able to be a better leader. I see. And what kind of organizations are these executives leading that you've worked with? All kinds of sectors. We have a pretty big footprint because we're here based in Portland, Oregon, and there is a, a tech presence here. Uh, We do work with Intel. They're one of our larger clients. We work with them for over 25 years. We have uh, firms like a wealth management firm that is growing, and uh, they needed some coaching for their executives and some culture change work. That's a really interesting one we should probably talk about. Hmm. Um, We've worked in government a lot. Uh, TriMet, uh, Light Rail, which is very um, prevalent here in the Northwest. And then I've worked for, um, one of my clients was in, uh, uh, back in Maryland, and they were um, a health insurance uh, company, uh, and they um, were growing and wanted to sell, so we were working to build up their people teams. So really a wide range. I think the main thing is we work with organizations that are committed to developing their people and committed to serving their customer well. That's the best fit for myself and my team. Yeah, you you mentioned that uh, on your website that you help people and organizations flourish. Yes. What do you mean by that word flourishing? Sometimes that word is used a lot these days, that term. What, What do you mean by helping organizations and people flourish? 
Well, I love that you asked that question because that word is particularly meaningful for me. It's a, actually from the Hebrew. And what it means, it's kind of similar to shalom, which is having everything in right relationship. And what we want to see is people flourish in their work, in their teams. So this is just this holistic unfolding and blossoming, the best part of humankind. They're flourishing in their spiritual relationship or wherever they are in that journey, developing that physically, uh, right relationship with the community. So that word is meaningful for me and for our team. You mentioned, you know, spiritual relationships in the work you do. I mean, a lot of times, you know, leadership consultants kind of just focus on the business element, the kind of economic areas, building, you know, a, a culture and climate organization. But you mentioned spirituality. How does how does that fit into the work that you do? Well, I believe, and uh, the rest of our team believes that everyone is on some kind of spiritual journey, even if they don't recognize it. You know, we've seen a lot of stories in the news of so-called success. Um, and then we find out later the underbelly on that is it was all about work and money and they were neglecting their spirit and their soul. And we even have seen, like I'm thinking about Tony Hesch, who was the founder of Zappos. His life ended in a tragic way um, because he, I think, had lost where he was as a spirit and a soul. And uh, it's a very sad story of a very talented man who did some great work in the world. So we believe if you don't take care of that, you can't do all the other stuff well. Hmm. And what does that look like in your organization as you go in and, and work with these organizations, helping them to tend for their, to their spirituality? What does that look like? Well, in the work we do, we usually do an intake. We talk about values. We have them identify their values, like five core values that they would even die for that are so important. And then we talk about what kind of life they want to have mm. and what kind of leadership legacy they want to leave. So we get to some of the deeper things. What's their vision at the end of their life? We do an exercise where we have them imagine themselves being their most successful that they would be. And what would that look like? And what would people say about them at their memorial service? So getting out of the American, um, what do I want to call it? Just that rat race of making money and owning stuff and having your name in the paper. Um, we just go a lot deeper. And most clients really appreciate that. Hmm. Do you find, I know I've worked a lot with schools or public schools over the years, and there's a lot of really cautiousness about talking about spirituality in the public school arena and probably for, for good reason. But you, have you found that when you work with organizations that there's also a discomfort with that, or there's a, a full embrace of talking about those kinds of issues? I'm surprised that people 99% of the time want to have that conversation once they trust you and once they know that you're going to listen about their journey, not proselytize them. That's what people react to. And I don't blame them. Uh, I think a lot of times, particularly in the evangelical Christian faith, 
people feel like you're doing an Amway sell on them. So I, I don't mean to cast aspersions, but I've had people say, wow, this is nice to have this conversation. I don't feel like you're selling me something. Mm. So people, that's where people resist. Mm. We just ask them, tell us a little bit more about your your spiritual background and journey. What's that been like? You know, how how do you think about God or a greater power? And sometimes they say, I don't. But often a, something will happen in their life, like a, a rupture in a relationship, or they get laid off, um, or they get promoted, <laughs> and they feel afraid, and they feel vulnerable in their humanity, like we all do. Um, and it doesn't matter, by the way, what their title is. I was mm. surprised that mm. just, you know, we all put our pants on <laughs> one leg at a time. Yeah. So um, people then will open it up and they, they find out that we, um, we have different spiritual practices on my team. Mine is, is Christian and they know that I go to church and I let them know who I am without forcing that. Mm. Cause that's an important part of, of who I am and how I work. Have you had any stories of anyone that you've worked with that, that was particularly meaningful that, um really you're dealing with spiritual issues was a big part of the work you were doing as a coach absolutely um yeah this was a wonderful um experience because i felt god setting this all up this was during the time i um was in cancer um treatment and I had just gone through chemo, but I had a big contract and that was before I had a lot of people. So I had to travel. Um, and one morning um, I had to get up early to go to the, to the airport and your joints often ache and you're very tired during chemo. This was one of the week off, you know, you do one week on one week off um, frequently. So I get to the airport at 5.30 in the morning and I am just grumbling about having to be there. And um, <laughs> all kinds of things happened. A people mover guy came right by me and said, hey, it's looking like you need a ride. So this, you know, I've never used one. I always just walk, right? Because I'm getting in my steps. But that day it was brilliant. And uh, then I got to the gate and there was somebody playing the piano uh, that was playing one of my favorite songs. This is at then at six in the morning. I've never heard anyone there at six. Then I have a layover in um, Austin, Texas, getting uh, to my uh, my main site. And I see this beautiful woman in a white suit. I mean, she was just striking. She looked like she could have been on the cover of Vogue. And I just look, looked up and smiled at her. Well, lo and behold, I end up sitting next to her on the plane. She sits down next to me. And um, we just had a conversation and I noticed that she had a bracelet on and it had a cross on it. And I said, that looks like something meaningful for you. You know, after we had gotten acquainted and broken the ice and she said, oh, it is, it was my grandmother's, mm -hmm. but um, I don't, I'm really struggling with my beliefs right now. I'm like, oh my goodness. And so I left that alone and we talked a little more. And I learned about her. She was a physician's assistant. And um, finally, I, she turned to me and she said, what do you do? And I said, well, I I'm, I'm, do a lot of leadership development and executive coaching. 
and she burst into tears. And she told me that her mother had been praying for her, mm. that, that someone she would meet would help her with her job and her faith. <laughs> Just completely. Other people would say random. That kind of stuff happens. Mm. Even on a, my worst day when I didn't want to go to the airport. And it turned out I coached her for six months. She was single. She had never been married. Um, she began to move towards a faith practice um, of prayer and reading scripture and uh, learning how to incorporate that in her life. She met a young man. They started to go to church and now they're married. She changed professions so she didn't have to travel so much, but it was such a uh, honor and a pleasure to be part of her journey because we often intersect at a place and work with the people and then they go on. Mm. And other times they'll call us back mm. when they hit another speed bump. So yeah, I could feel God's presence in that. Mm. And I was just being myself, you know, mm. trying to love on someone that ended up next to me. It wasn't an accident. <laughs> You're listening to Intersections and we're talking with Karen Howells, who is a executive coach and president of the Howells Group. Um, that's an interesting story uh, you share, and it really brings up the whole connection. What do you see as the connection between leadership and belief? You, that sounds like a conversation you had with her and very much into dealing with faith issues, spiritual issues, and her career, her personal life. How do you see the connection between belief and leadership? I think those two words are... Um sides of the same coin if you are not a person who has strong values that you can commit to uh, if you uh, do not see your own infallibility which is humility um, and if you do not have some sort of guidance beyond yourself the world is so turbulent um Trying to lead now is, is an unbelievably stressful, challenging uh, position and commitment. So the old model of the heroic leader on the white horse, and by, he, by the way, he was usually a white male, right? Um, it was a very, it was sort of a trope. And those kinds of leadership models or a lack of a model with that, you know, you are going to save the day. Good luck with that in these times. You need to know how to bring out the best in each person. You need to know how to be a humble listener. Yes, you need to be smart, but it's the people that are smarter in the people area. They're the ones that they, that can solve the problems because it's too complex to do on your own. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the amount of choices coming at you that are critical um, are, are overwhelming. Mm. And I don't think it matters if you're, you're in a nonprofit, in a bank, or you are uh, building parts in manufacturing.
How have you seen those changes, you know, in the in the 30 plus years you've been doing this? Um, there's a lot of discussion about sort of a crisis of character and virtue and um, those issues in our society, not only, you know, in organizations and our politics. That kind of, how have you seen that reflected in, in changes in the organizations that you've worked with over the years? I think the lack of a moral compass and the disregard for the criticality of character, um, things like we mentioned, a strong belief system, humility, a self-awareness. Uh, if you're not self-aware, you can't grow, which means you can't learn new skills. And, and if you can't admit a failure and uh, transgressions when you do something wrong, um, people won't trust you. So I think there's a crisis of trust and leadership. We, we're all seeing that expanded right now. So I think that we have to return to um, the core of what it means to lead, which is who are you? Are you doing something beyond yourself? That's another big thing. Um, if, if your whole goal is to get it vested, that's your only goal. It's to get vested, get more shares, and be a millionaire or a billionaire. <clears throat> if that's the only goal. That's I'm not saying that's a bad goal. But why? For what end? And we've just seen so many people fall by the wayside and get tripped up on where they may have started out, being raised with character, um, practicing that, and then all the other stuff takes over. And not only do they fail as a leader, but they fail in life. Mm -hmm. And they take other people with them, which is yeah. just a heartbreak. Yeah. So in, in your life, you, you're talking about the importance of, of kind of a strong moral compass, belief system. What has your spiritual journey been like? How have you come to embrace? What are your beliefs personally? And how have you come to embrace those? Well, I've got a lot of chapters. So let me see how <laughs> brief I can be. Um, I was 20 years old, so I was raised in the church, but I didn't understand the relational element, being able to actually communicate with God. Excuse me, when you say the church, what, what, what a particular denomination? A, or... a mainline church Methodist. Okay. And it was more about the church of good behavior than it was about spiritual formation. You know, don't do this, do this. And so I rejected that, as many young people do in undergraduate school. I was done with that. We all see the hypocrisy because none of us um, walk completely in our values all the time because we're fallible. And um, so a young man took me um, to church on the second date. And I had watched him. I'd observed him. We'd been friends. There was something different about him. And that was the beginning of what I would call a spiritual awakening. Hmm. And um, and then it, it grew over time, and it was three steps forward, two steps back. Because the world is a, um, a tempting place to put oneself first, to maybe do things that aren't quite squared because it might make you look good. And we all want to look good, right? So, you know, four steps forward, two stumbles back, another step forward, learning and growing. I think then when I started my own business at 33, I felt my need even more. So the growth has been 
progressive and I've been able to um, talk about my wins and my losses and my successes and failures. Uh, and that's been some of the most uh, enriching parts of, of walking alongside other people. And I don't always talk about it. Sometimes, Seth, if people are like, no, that's really not a part of my life and I don't really want to have that conversation. I, I always try to do, and we all believe this, do the very best work you can, serve the person, and where there are opportunities and readiness, we'll step into that. But it should never be a forced thing. Well, you mentioned uh, you went through a, a spiritual awakening. I'm sure that was a long process. What was what was what was going on inside you as you were? I guess you were in college at the time, yeah. and you were wrestling with spirituality and the things you're learning in college. What was your spiritual awakening? Could you walk us through that a little bit with you? Yes, um, I have a a minor in music, and then I, my major was what I'm doing now organization development, communication, training and development. Um, so at that time, I was doing a lot of music in college. I would have been a sophomore in college. This particular pastor was had played had played in the symphony before he became a minister in San Francisco. So he started his sermon with the, an exquisite violin solo. And it was this, it was as if God knew I was going to be there that day. He didn't always, always do that. But this this day I went, and then he talked in metaphor about faith is is like God playing on with you as the instrument and you collab collaborating with him to make the best music. i'm I'm not doing it justice. But I was just like, what? That never happened in the Methodist church that I went to. And then I'll never forget he said, um, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, and then he had us put our name in that John 3.16 verse, which is a well-known verse out of, the, out of the New Testament, out of the Gospels. And I put my name in there. And for the first time, God so loved Karen. Karen. Oh, not just the world in general, in, conceptually, but Karen so that she might have everlasting life. And just it's just like the switch went on and the lights got brighter, that he actually knew me and wanted to have me know him better. I, I was blown away. And I'm thankful I wrote about it in my journal because I can always go back and remember what happened. Hmm. Was that a hard leap for you, um, dealing with sometimes people who, and I don't know if this comes up with the people that you work with who don't have any faith or spirituality. They think these things are kind of these big leaps of faith and, and they don't want to trust in things that they can't see or quantify. And, um, and college, you were mentioned in college is a time of critical thinking. You're not just adopting dogma here, dogma there. What was that like for you to take that personal leap to say, this is something that, that I want to embrace for my beliefs? Well, it was interesting because in college, I feel like that was where my life began. I loved undergraduate school. I went to a pretty, uh, it was liberal arts, it was small, it was, you, you had to have pretty good marks to get in there. And um, things were going so great. 
I was meeting all these people. I loved my classes. My learning was just going to the moon. Um, and of course I was out of my parents' house, which every you know 18 year old wants to do. But I remember having this sense, even though I was, I got the main solo as a freshman with the concert choir, it was like really surprising. Just, I was, you know, dating, um, interesting men. We had people from all over the world, you know, that went there and I just had this emptiness. It was so weird because everything was going great. So one night I got down a on my knees and I said, God, if you're there, I could you talk to me? Because I don't feel satisfied, even though I'm succeeding. <laughs> so there was a hunger in me. And I think as a person who's always loved nature and have, I'm fascinated by people. I know you are too. <laughs> I'm fascinated by people and it's like, how could this happen from the big bang? All these personalities, all this inner, you know, intellect, all these different types of plants and animals. And I just couldn't put it together logically. It was harder not to have faith in a way than to search out faith. Hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. So then that guy kind of saw that it was a reasonable step for you. It was a step. But then what really made a difference is the people who came around me. And by the, that time, I was dating the young man who had invited me uh, to join him at church. <laughs> and then I married him uh, not too long after. <laughs> and that that was, yeah, 40 plus years ago. But the people who came around me were different. And I dove into the scriptures and other readings um, that helped me to see the logic uh, behind how the Bible actually is a fascinating um, interweaving of all these authors in all these countries over all these hundreds of years. And I began to see the logic then after taking that heart leap mm. of faith. So the, the logic part came after the heart. Yes. And for some, right. it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Though I had seen the logic of the created world, mm. which I think he speaks through. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. Trinity speaks through. Hmm. You're listening to Intersections here. And uh, we're talking with Karen Howells, who is an executive coach and the founder of the Howells Group. Um, you work with variety of organizations uh, all over the world, um, people from different faiths or no faith. Um, what what have been some of the common challenges that you see in these organizations that, that whether it's in this part of the world, whether it's in Asia, Europe, that, that all organizations, I'm sure there's differences too, and I want to talk about that also. Yeah. But yeah. to start off, what are some of the common themes that, that organizations deal with in terms of focusing on their mission and their direction and their their the focus of their organization what have you found big question um first of all at the human level um how to work across time zones and cultures and collaborate um and to have some sort of leadership to help that happen 
Um, it used to be, you know, not too long ago, we were in offices together. Uh, companies have been collaborating across time zones for a while, but now that's often all they have. And, you know, there's geopolitical issues that, that come in. So how do you bring people together around a shared purpose, a common vision, a strategy, and then a plan when everything is changing fast? That's why leadership, I think, has become even more important. Hmm. Keep the wild geese, if you will, flying information. And we see that here in the Northwest a lot. So that's a metaphor I love where the geese, they're interchanging and they're they're going the same direction. Uh, that doesn't mean it's, it's uniformity, but it's unity of purpose. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that, good luck getting anything done. Hmm. I think also the differences in culture around communication. Um, that's a huge one. If you have people from Malaysia, which we've had, and you have people from Israel, which we've had, trying to work together. Hmm. In Malaysia, uh, it's very hierarchical. Uh, you respect authority, you respect the hierarchy, and you are careful to not upset people. In Israel, not so much, right? It's a culture of debate. It's a culture of pride in uh, their culture being um, often superior and, um, you know, long roots of being the loner, right? All the times the Jewish people, you know, had to leave and not just traveling in the, uh, you know, in the desert in Sinai, but they had to, they had to leave and they were persecuted. So there's a lot there just with that. So Mm. we have to teach people and a leader has to know how to create a safe environment and a respectful environment and not to change yourself, but adapt and adjust to what the other person might need. Mm. And that sounds so simple, Seth, as I'm saying that, but that is a lot of the work we do. Mm. How do you see the other person? Not as less than, not as their role, see the other person, respect them, honor them, even if you vehemently disagree with their approach or their cultural ways, you respect that and you work towards a shared goal. How did that work out? That's a great example between Malaysia, Malaysians and Israelis. How did, what were some of the the strategies that you specifically did with those teams as they're working together? Well, we had to teach them each to tune in. If you think of an old radio dial, you know, in our digital world now, (laughs) you don't see a radio dial, but, um, or maybe volume, you could think of it that way now. Uh, The Malaysian people, especially the women, because it is a more traditional culture in that way, had to turn up the volume on their opinion. They had to step out, encourage more to say what they thought because the Israelis wanted to know. It frustrated them when they couldn't get an answer Mm. or an honest answer, they would say. So we had to ask them to dial it up. And we had to ask the Israelis to dial it back. Mm. We had to say, you know, what you might do now, let's stop and have you ask a question. Otherwise, what we have 
is dueling monologues. Mm-hmm. And, and so we would teach the Malaysians how to politely interrupt so they could get a word in edgewise. And we would teach the Israelis how to ask more questions and paraphrase what they'd heard the other person say. That's not really a part of their culture. Hmm. So that took an effort and humility on that. Hmm. And was it successful? Um, in many cases, yes. And in some cases, people couldn't make that leap. But overall, I think, you know, everything's progressive. We never grow in a straight line. And some of these people will go back and see as they move up the leadership hierarchy and they're in another program or they'll call us for coaching. And we see that they have moved forward. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to be realistic in our expectations. Can you can you walk us through a a particular company or organization, um, either either in 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 United States or overseas, and what how you help them, and you know how what the work you did was successful with them? Sure, um, I'll I'll take uh, I'll take an organization that was in Rockwood, Maryland. I was called by uh, the CEO. He was. Very, I had been referred by one of his buddies. That's often how we get in the door. He he was he was um, nervous about consultants. He'd had a coach before, and he said, "Are you going to ask me to hug people every day? Because if you are, <laughs> I'm not doing it." He happened to be a, a person of uh, uh, of Jewish uh, background, just an absolutely wonderful human being. And um, so we, I said, you know, let's go slow. How about if we experiment? Let's do six months of coaching. And then you say, yes, we'll go forward or nope, I'm done. So we did that. So I had to tune into where he was. It, it couldn't be about, well, I know I can help you sign the contract or else. So, okay, let's try this. So we worked together for six months. He began to see what executive coaching really was. Me asking deep questions me supporting and encouraging him, me challenging him in the way that worked with him. And so then he hired me to do some retreats for his team, some strategic planning retreats, and those were very positive. And then I began going every quarter to do training and development because he wanted to grow for his staff. He wanted to grow the business and then sell it. And we often enter in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he was had his fingers in everything, as usually founders do. It's a common thing. So we helped him build a management team, develop the management team, get him more strategic. And eventually he did sell his business. I think we worked, I worked with him for six years. Hmm. And then he sold his business for 25 million. And he was a person who knew his beliefs, had great character. And so we were able to just take him to the next level of success with new tools and ways of thinking. Mm. And one of the things I loved is he wouldn't sell until he knew that the, that the buyer would treat his people fairly and they all got a portion of the buyout. Mm. So that is something that feels like it was flourishing, Seth. Mm. Everybody flourished. Nice, nice. Um, that's a great story. Um, what about a, a time where it didn't work out so well? I'm sure you have some of those. 
So a wealth management firm um, hired us. The founder was 70 years old, a formidable man. He um, was very wealthy, had uh, equity investors all around the world, and he was an immigrant. Um, and there was a lot of information when I say that he had pulled himself up by his bootstraps. Um, and he was a bit odd when I met with him. He wanted me to coach one of his up and coming leaders. Um, he was a difficult personality and um, we found out more later why. But we were going along pretty smoothly. His person I was coaching was doing better. I then worked with her team. The, the progression is usually first you build trust, show results, uh, help the leader, have them know that you've got their back. You know, you're going to tell them the truth. You're going to push them, but you're also going to hold them with care and respect them. So things went from there. We began to do organizational change because he said he wanted to exit. He had three other businesses he was running at the same time. And um, when things started to hit the fan because he needed to change, he didn't like that. Mm. And he was actually abusive to my team. I had to actually fire him as a client mm. wow. because I couldn't allow him, again, having strong beliefs, to be um, really inappropriate with two of the other women um, mm. that were on my team one of whom is a clinical psychologist. And it turns out he really was pretty much a classic narcissist. Hmm. So you can't really coach a narcissist. I learned that. Hmm. But he finally did let go of the firm um, and the partners bought it. And about a month after they called us and we ended up back there. It was very hard. That's only the second time in 35 years I had ended a contract. Because you want to do everything you can. Right, right. But it was the right choice hmm. to say, no, you've crossed a line. And I think it was probably, a, it was a six-figure contract for me to say, we, we, you can't cross that line, my team. Because yeah. that's not flourishing. And that's allowing you to do something that is destructive to you, your team, your family. So I can't, I can't, you don't want to change. So I have to leave. I have to leave. Yeah. You can tell just by my talking about it. It was hard. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I guess in, in order for you to really work effectively with people, there has to be an openness, not just for um, the change in the organization, but personal practices and patterns of leaders. And some leaders want to embrace that. Some people, some leaders don't. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Intersections, and we're talking with Karen Howells, who is an executive coach and the founder of the Howells Group. Um, you, you've talked about um, beliefs, your personal beliefs and, and leadership, the connections there and, and how you embrace your beliefs when you were in college. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your, your journey of that? Um, you, you mentioned cancer treatment in your life. Um, have there been other times or that time and, and other times as well where your beliefs, your faith has been challenged and wrestling with, with holding on to them in the middle of a difficult time or what, what, what's that been like for you? Yeah, there's been some really pivotal points. 
um, in the mid nineties, uh, my husband and I, uh, had been married for quite some time. We had two kids and he was struggling and making some decisions that weren't good for him or our family. And our, our marriage was tentative at that time. And we were involved in the church. We, um, we both love God, but I just, I was discouraged and um, didn't know if I could keep it together with the way things were going. Um, so we ended up talking to a counselor at a retreat center. And that was a divine intervention to, to help Rob kind of um, break through um, and commit to some changes that he needed to make. I, I couldn't make, I couldn't choose those changes for him. And that was uh, really a blessing because we had talked about splitting up on the way to this retreat center. Um, so it was scary. And, and we made it through that really big speed bump. Um, and then I mentioned my cancer journey. Um, that happened while my kids were in college and um, that was very challenging. I almost died from a botched surgery um, had they not intervened in 24 hours because I got septic. I got the infection that many people get. So I made it through that. But then our son, who had cystic fibrosis, he was diagnosed at two. We had that in our journey as parents. Mm. And that was really painful. We did everything we could to help him live a normal life. And he had many good years. But um, as his health declined his junior year, he was given um, opioids because he had serious joint pain and was under the care of um, a, um, a management uh, health organization that managed the meds, but he ended up getting addicted. And um, it was it was a nightmare. It was seven years of pain for him, pain for his sister, pain for Rob and I and our family. We lost him then in 2015, oh, about eight years ago. So through that whole thing, I, I am pretty sure it would have been hard to stay together, to raise our daughter in the midst of that, to keep working and running the business with all that trauma. It was really traumatic. I have such a heart for the whole community when someone is facing any kind of addiction. And then healing from that, I mean, we found out later that many couples, you know, like 85% split up when there's the death of a child. Mm. And here we are, we're going to celebrate 47 years in November. So we just see, we see our spiritual life and our relationship with God and the larger community that's a key part of having a relationship with God is being in a community. Mm. And that's a key part of consulting. If you, if you think you're just going to do it alone, it, it's, it's too hard. Mm. You need other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I just see um, that's been, those have been key parts. It's kind of a long answer, but I've had a lot of chapters. Yeah. Well, <laughs> when, yeah. When you, when you're dealing with, you know, your son and on his illness and, and then, um, your cancer how does that work out in your beliefs i mean for people who might be listening who might not understand that belief system and and think well how could you 
hold on to some kind of higher power in the middle of these things going on. How how does it work for you, um, or how, how how did it work to to help you flourish and and get through that um, in that time? How did your that faith is, work? That's a beautiful question. I first of all, um, I didn't have the strength humanly to deal with the pain and disruption, uh, the uncertainty. Um, just the time and inconvenience of chemo and radiation and multiple surgeries. But in when you're living your life centered in Christ and following the scripture's wisdom, what we're shown is that suffering has an end. It's not some random act of God striking at you. The suffering is part of the journey. And it actually refines us as fire. You know, when, they, when they're refining silver or gold, it's the heat that makes it beautiful. It's the heat that makes it valuable. It's made me such a better person, a more compassionate person, um, even for what my clients are going through. I have more capacity to now to actually relate to their hurts I know what it's like to be afraid you're not going to live. Um, I know what it's like to lose something that you've spent your whole, you know, 28 years, your son, trying to give them a flourishing life. So loss has actually created more gratitude mm. and given me more access. Mm. And, and people told me this, that I've walked in faith as well. You will be glad this happened to you someday. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> That's your first human response. So I, I think it can change you if you allow the suffering to refine you and you walk through it looking for what is the game here. Were there in the middle of that, were there any particular meaningful sacred texts that you held on to um, from, from the Bible for you? Yeah, there's one verse that talks about, I will give you treasures in darkness. And I'm sorry right now, I'm, I'm forgetting the address of that, but it's in the Old Testament. Um, I will give you treasures in darkness. And you will know me in new ways. That was a verse that carried me. Hmm. And I was so grateful for verses that I had um, memorized because I had to go get those MRIs, you know, where you go in that big machine and it's really close and really loud. And I must have done Psalm 23, <laughs> you know, 20 times in one of those visits to keep myself calm. Which is that? Refresh that is, us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Or there's another translation that says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. Um, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Here's, the, here's a key line. He restores my soul. Because mm. over and over again, he's restored my soul. Mm. I actually had to speak two weeks after I had been booked as a keynote for a large women's conference. Two weeks after my son died. Mm. 
And my topic was how to be a tree of righteousness so that when the winds blow and the floods come, you don't fall over. I'm, that That's a paraphrase of that verse. And I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I didn't feel like it was the right thing for me to back out. I, there, I don't know who they were going to find, you know, in, in two weeks. So I went ahead after a lot of prayer and tears and I went back and listened to myself afterwards. And I was like, I'm not sure how I did that, but it was, that was somebody else was talking through me. Mm -hmm. I didn't break down. I, I, I did cry afterwards. It was stressful, but, um, and then a year later, a woman told me that she had lost her child and had been at that uh, session where I spoke and that held her mm. to losing her daughter in a car accident. So stuff yeah. like that, wow. you know, it's way bigger than you. Wow. It's great to hold on when you're in the middle of that. And, to, and obviously now you're at the other end of it, but to see the, the benefits that come out both for you and others through that suffering that's yeah none of us want want to choose that in our life but yeah. um to see that is beautiful yeah yeah and i'm watching my dear parents now at 96 and 93 and they um don't have the same reference as i do around the nature of suffering and i have a 97 97 year old woman who's been my spiritual mentor and i watch how she's walking through it it's just Seth, it's inspiring. Mm. She has become more and more beautiful. And more, um, she's still seeing um, young couples who come to her for counsel and prayer. She said, I'm not done till God's done with me. I just, I'm just learning so much every day. Man, that inspires me. <laughs> mm. Mm. And you can see where making that choice makes a difference. I, sometimes in the length of your life, but definitely in the quality of how you experience whatever you're going through. Well, um, we may have some, for anyone listening to this program right now, and uh, maybe they're a leader of a, of a company, a school, organization. Uh, maybe they're, they're going through something in their life or in their organization. Do you have any words that, that would kind of help guide them through this uh this process for them start with who you are and where you are um think about what you might be sacrificing or a value you might not be embracing in yourself where you need to go deeper so that you can have that core to then make needed changes. Don't go it alone. Find a mentor, someone you respect in your organization, in your community. It could be a male friend, a female friend, if you're a female leader, to walk alongside you. Um, and look at people around you who seem to be taking those trials and tribulations in a way that is different find out those who seem to be living a different life uh, with principles that would align um, with all the transcendent truth 
all the all the faiths, right? There's be- beautiful things in all the faiths, and start, you know, start exploring. Um, read the twenty third Psalm. Uh, check out the Bible Project. That it's a fabulous way to learn about what the Bible really is and what it means from the beginning of Genesis to the end in videos and in explanations. Um, you know, read the different things. Uh, my neighbor is reading the Quran. Um, I'm talking to her about the scriptures. She's 31. Her church experience was terrible. So we're looking at what what is a faith practice going to be for you? And walk with them. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for uh, being with us on Intersections today. Thank you, Seth. And thanks for your great questions. It really made me think. Karen Howells is an executive coach, organization development consultant, and the founder of the Howells Group. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intersections. To subscribe, click follow in your Apple, Google, or Spotify podcast app and make sure to leave a review. All archived podcasts and information about our guests can be found on our website, intersectionspodcast.org. On our website, you can sign up for our free At The Intersections newsletter and listen to Faith Matters Conversations featuring panels of spiritual leaders discussing how their faith traditions speak to a variety of topics. You can contact Intersections by emailing info at intersectionspodcast.org. I'm Seth Shapiro, and join us on our next episode where we will continue exploring the crossroads of ideas on intersections.